Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, April the 23rd, 2023. It's a sunny day, a sunny warm spring morning in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States in Northern California. It's very promising outside, but the newspapers are less promising. There's no spring in the air when it comes to international politics. The headlines today are full of the brewing civil war, the human catastrophe in Sudan, which one might call Africa or the Middle East, depending how you define Africa in the Middle East. What's clear is what's happening in, uh, in, in Sudan is past a, part of a post-U.S. world, perhaps, or a post-Cold War world. Uh, in Sudan, the, the, the Wagner group, Putin's group of thugs, are surging as the United States' influence fades. Um, we're living in a Hobbesian world now of Russian mercenaries closely linked, according to the Washington Post, with Sudan's warring generals. This is part of this Hobbesian world that we're stumbling into. Uh, obviously, Ukraine is symbolic, uh, more and more apocalyptic, bleak images out of the Ukraine. And international politics is reflected in this, China and Russia versus the West, China today and the headlines of the Washington Post. It's being criticized for its... Um, questioning of sovereignty of ex-Soviet states. It's very chilling. And it all reflects, I think, in many ways, the death of an American dream, which was born in the Middle East and failed in the Middle East. We did a show uh, a couple of weeks ago with Stephen Simon, who has a new book out called Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. And clearly what's happening in Sudan is a reflection of that. Uh, it's a reflection of the fall of American ambition in the Middle East. My guest today on the show is Faisal Saeed Al-Mutar. He's an Iraqi-American human rights activist. Um, and he's also um, the founder of Ideas Beyond Borders. He's from Iraq and he's still committed to an American world, a liberal world, although I'm wondering, Faisal, whether you're as pessimistic as I am or the papers are this morning about this post-American world, this apocalyptic Hobbesian world we seem to be stumbling into. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I mean, I'm more optimistic about the newer generations of in the Middle East than I'm optimistic about American foreign policy. Um, I mean, there, there is now an entirely new generation, especially in Iraq, that grew post war um, and they have very kind of little memory of the war and, and and they are focusing more on their country's future and aiming to be less reliant on um, on the United States I mean the um, it's hard to really define uh, I'm, I'm really interested to, to read the book you mentioned it's not really hard to define what where and what are America's ambitions in the Middle East I mean the um, the intervention in Iraq and, and Central Asia and Afghanistan, um, has been murky to say the least, and, and, and kind of the mission of, of that war kept changing uh, from the removal of Saddam to combating terror to nation building to going back to combating terror. Um, so it's, it's really um, 
sad. I mean, the, the, the only kind of caveat here is that the Middle East has generally been a battlefield in most of its history. And when the kind of the American-led world order disappears, we are now seeing that China is leading the way, and then the same with, with Russia to, to some to smaller extent. So um, the world order that Kate for is, is the one that in which liberal democracy and, and kind of liberalism or classical liberalism flourishes. Um, and seeing now the kind of the rise of, of China and the rise of influence there is not make is not going to make that any easier. Uh, Faisal, as I said, uh, you're an Iraqi American human rights activist, writer, and satirist. You were admitted to the United States, a refugee in 2013. Before we get to what you're doing now, tell us about your earlier life. Uh, I know you were born in Iraq. Sure. So I was born in, in Babylon, and then I was raised in Baghdad, the capital city. You say um, you were born in Babylon. What does that you mean? The city of Babylon, or this, yeah? So so Babylon is a province in in modern day Iraq, and that's where uh, it's divided to a couple uh, cities. And the uh, one of them is the old city where you see the gate of Ishtar, and and there's annual music festival. Um, and then where I was born is is kind of. I would say the downtown city of the province of Babylon, which was is called Hella. Um, but I, however, I was raised mostly in the in the capital city. Uh, my my parents, who are, my dad studied in the United Kingdom. My parents are both kind of academic. Uh, my dad is an orthopedic surgeon. My mom was a lawyer. And then uh, Baghdad, where there were more opportunities. Um, so that's where I grew up. And the neighborhood I grew up in was mostly residential. Um, it was an area where. A lot of Saddam Hussein's former generals and, and people who were in the former regime uh, live in. And when the U.S. war happened in 2003, uh, my neighborhood converted from being a residential area um, into a battlefield, as many of the people who used to be affiliated with the regime escaped to, to neighboring countries or moved elsewhere. And then groups like Al-Qaeda took over. Faisal, and, before uh, we get into Al-Qaeda and post... Yes. Saddam, Iraq. Uh, you said you grew up in this wealthy, privileged suburb. Your parents were uh, sophisticated um, professionals, uh, doctors. Two questions on that. Uh, I assume they weren't involved with the Saddam's Ba'athist regime. No, no, they weren't. Well, um, there was. There's an ongoing debate about how bad living in Saddam's Iraq was. I mean, obviously, he's a, a monstrous guy, but could Does one exist in? Could one live as um, as a professional in Saddam's Iraq without being involved in politics and without being persecuted? It's it's very difficult, and it it depends a lot on your identity and, and what you are bringing to the table. Um, so, well, your family seems to have done all right. I mean, did your parents have to make, so to speak, compromises with with the regime, or could they really live their lives pretty much as long as they avoided political dissent of one kind? A lot. Um, I mean, one of the the kind of the system that that was there that if you are a doctor and if you are not affiliated with the Ba'ath Party, which was the case in of my dad, uh, your salary is pretty much done by like 90%. So, so how do you live in this fancy suburb then? 
Well, I mean, it was in the, it's not uh, it's not Westchester. Um, it's uh, well, you said that you to Iraq, so was he but, was he working mostly overseas? Was his most of his revenue from foreign? No, um, he, he had, my dad had uh, worked in public uh, school or public university, and then he had a private clinic, and um, so technically he had to work most of the day to be able because the public uh, university where he used to work at, I think his salary was a couple dollars a month. And some of that was even taken every time there is Saddam writes a book or something like that, then they take a cut from these couple of dollars. So most of my dad's income was really from the work that he used to do after he finishes his work at the public hospital because he was required as a kind of a socialist country. We were required to um, for people to work in the public jobs. And, and then there was some room in which you are able to kind of be to get some outside public job money but by uh by most standards i mean it, it, it while well, by comparison to iraq at the time we were considered to some how old were you when saddam was overthrown 12. so you don't have many memories of what life was like in saddam's iraq um I, I do have some i mean i mean the main memory that i do remember is is that my dad mentioning to me that anything is mentioned here in the house cannot leave the house because you never know who's in the intelligence services and who's not. Mm. Uh, the, we the did a show men... on um, Enver Hodges, Albania, in which um, we had a similar conversation with a philosopher at the London School of Economics. Um, Fe yeah, Fe 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 memory, just, uh, one, Sorry, one other memory is, is that uh, back in the day, we, we only had two TV channels, and, and my dad and I used to wake up like at 2, 3 in the morning listening to radio, uh, coming from overseas, so this this is what I would say are the are the memories of kind of the authoritarianism piece. But for for the most part, um, yeah, I mean we we had uh, we were not worried about um, be being uh, killed all the time compared to other people in the south or or the Kurds. Right. So um, Faisal, you've been involved with uh, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, Fair. Uh, you're a human rights activist, and you're also an anti racist campaigner, which I hope most of us are, goes without saying. <laughs> How much of Saddam's Iraq, and you mentioned the South, and of course, when you talk about the South, that was a, a Shia South as opposed to a Sunni heartland. How much of Saddam's Iraq in retrospect can be understood as the dictatorship of an ethnic group over another, of, 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 of Sunni Muslims over Shia Muslims? Uh, it's it's one one side of the story. Um, I mean, Iraq was founded by King Faisal, uh, or at least the, the kingdom, which what used to be after the fall of the Ottoman Empire with the help of the British. And uh, from the era of King Faisal to Saddam Hussein, uh, pretty much all of the rulers except one uh, were Sunni. So, it, it while it's kind of simplistic to say that the Sunnis were the ones kind of the ones who were the rulers, but also the, the kind of the educated elite of the country. Um, and that's, so that's definitely, and what happened I think over time is that the the, the regime of Saddam Hussein became um, sectarian, especially after the, the Iraq-Iran war, uh, where he was seeing that uh, there were many Revolutionists against him, and then that's where he that was, was stories of him utilizing chemical weapons and and stuff. So it became not just that you have to be non, you have to be Sunni to be liked by Saddam. You also have to be submissive 
to to like him, and so he started even killing uh, Sunnis. And, and in fact, he killed his uh, son-in-law um, before thinking that he might be aiming to overthrow the regime. So as more and more during the sanctions, that's the era I grew up in. Okay, so in well, the, I don't um, think we're. Um... I don't think there's any debate that we're all thrilled that Saddam Hussein is no longer around. When he was, um, when the when the Americans invaded and Saddam Hussein was um, as overthrown, why wasn't that the beginning, uh, Faisal, of a new of, of of a positive new chapter in Iraqi history? What do you think went wrong? Um, a lot. I mean, I mean the I think to the the simplest way is that I mean Iraq was definitely not ready for. Democracy. That's that's my opinion. Um, I think that and you're not alone that, there. I think most people would agree with you. Yeah, I mean the the fact is that that many of the I mean think of Iraq was kind of like a prison and Saddam Hussein was the prison guard and 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 then many people at the prison some of them are criminals or some are innocent. So the moment that the prison guards were were, were gone, then there was all of that chaos of multiple factions and those who were. Um, Kind of disadvantaged, or were from affiliated with foreign nations like Iran and and others, um, who tried to come come and control the country. I, th I think is that yeah, what went wrong from the beginning is that the, the United States and and Britain um, did not understand the history and the dynamics of that country. And yeah, there is a interesting MSNBC, which goes without saying, they they tend to be a bit of an echo chamber. They blame. <laughs> Rupert Murdoch, his media, and Fox for Iraq, Trump, and the big lie. Was America lied to on Iraq? I mean, maybe not by Rupert Murdoch, but more broadly. Was it presented too simplistically? Was, was everyone in America um, in the dark, so to speak, about what Iraq was really like? Was it men like Wolfowitz who surrounded Bush, the, the, the younger Bush, the boy, um, were they the ones who were deluded about what Iraq was really like? The neocons who pushed for the invasion? Um, the, the thing is, like, uh, because Iraq was a very close society in Saddam, it was really hard to know what was going on. And the thing is that the people that, at least from the Iraqi side, there's a, there's a name probably many people know, is Ahmed Chalabi and, mm. and others. There was a lot of people that the, the whisperer. US... He whispered into Wolfowitz's ear. He was the man who made it sound all too simple, didn't he? Exactly. So, so people like Chalabi and others, who most of them were living in exile for for decades, uh, were giving a very rosy image that the the average Iraqi was just looking for a Jeffersonian democracy, and they were looking forward for for liberalism and all of that, and and. So the people that the U.S. surrounded itself with um, from the Iraqi side, most of them had their own interests. Uh, they, they had their own kind of agendas and, and beliefs. And then they were trying to really push the U.S. towards a certain direction in terms of um, giving them the, the delusion that, that they would, uh, the U.S. will just come in and it will be viewed as liberators. However, there is one truth about that, is that the U.S. were viewed as liberators in Kurdistan, the Kurdistan region of Iraq. The United States did not fire any bullet in that part of the world. Um, and also there were parts of the South that were very damaged by Saddam's regime that also welcomed the, the United States as liberators. But the, the areas that where Saddam had very strongholds, and that's where I grew up was in West Baghdad and in other places, uh, these were areas that were not at all 
won't come into the United States as liberators. And, and they thought... Hey, that so, Faisal, you be... were a 12-year-old boy when um, America was... Iraq was, so to speak, liberated. Not everyone, as you suggest, see the Americans as liberators. Americans like to think of themselves as liberators. How did you get from the, the Baghdad of, uh, of, of that age, uh, the American invasion, to today when you live in New York and, and, and you're the founder... Um, of uh, this organization, uh, Ideas Beyond the Borders. You're talking yeah. to me from Wall Street, so you must have done something right, Faisal. Um, so, so, I mean, the 2005, um, after the kind of Al-Qaeda took hold in my neighborhood, um, me and many of my friends in high school, the, I mean, Al-Qaeda was really all over the street, and, and they were trying to recruit uh, many of us, and, and they wanted to, many people to join the fight against the, the Iraqi army and, and others, um, and we decided to speak out against them. So that's that was kind of my first involvement in the crazy world that I eventually entered and now I'm, I'm, I'm player at, is that um, we were a group of mostly young people, high schoolers, who were very outspoken against that regime, and, and which was to some extent a regime and a state on its own. In 2007, at the peak so, so of Just that, to go though, back to that, it, it, it's, what, what did that mean? Would they get you into rooms? Would you read their flyers? Would they bully you? Would they threaten you, Al-Qaeda? Um, they were everywhere. So, so that was the, the area that I grew up in is, is where Al-Qaeda had a very strong hold. For, for, well, Fallujah is in, is in West Iraq. So where I grew up is about an hour away from Fallujah. Um, and that was the area where, um, I mean, America lost a lot of soldiers, but that was the, the area that many of um, militias, mostly Al-Qaeda, was really You use strong. this word Al-Qaeda, Faisal. When, we think, when Americans think of Al-Qaeda, they think of bin Laden and 9-11. Wasn't the Al-Qaeda you described hardline, nationalist, Sunni Iraqis, that their association with bin Laden was marginal, if any, if at best? Yes, so so Al Qaeda AQI Al Qaeda of Iraq had a different leader. His name is Zarqawi, and Zarqawi thought Osama bin Laden was a moderate. So the one that <laughs> existed in um, in Iraq, which eventually, I mean, Zarqawi to some extent, there are a lot of books by Michael Weiss and others. He's viewed also as the founder of ISIS, not just not just Al Qaeda. So the one the one in Iraq in particular were a combination of international. So there were a lot of people from. Um, Morocco, from Palestine, Chechnya, etc. They were the kind of international people, and then there were the people who were former generals of the Iraqi army and 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 kind of former Saddam's people. So it was a combination of of people who were former Baathists and and former leaders of of the Iraqi military combined with with people from outside. And Zarqawi himself is from Jordan. So the the neighborhood, the neighborhood I grew up in. In fact, there's a neighborhood called Al Amriya. Uh, one of the streets changed to Chechen Street, uh, as the first language that was spoken there was Russian, not not even Arabic. So, so that was the the kind of the the, the combination of many of these uh, factions. Yeah, and you must have been very brave to resist. I'm sure that many of your friends were hurt. Some of them probably killed. What was the alternative to Al Qaeda then? What, so obviously you you. You didn't jump into their camp, into bed with Al Qaeda, um, as as Iraq unraveled. 
where was your natural political home within Iraq uh, in in the post invasion age? As you as you became a man, you said you were twelve when the Americans invaded. What what? How old were you when you left? I was eighteen. Okay, so, so in the, in, that, in those six years, where did you intellectually, ideologically, naturally gravitate toward? Um, I mean, there there is still sizable um, liberal uh, Iraqi parties. So, so in two thousand five, um, prior to the elections, there we had um, a secular uh, Iraqi. His name is Ayad Alawi to be the kind of the prime minister, and the inclination that I had was more towards an an, an inclusive secular Iraq, not a sectarian one. Um, unfortunately, because of the elections that happened in 2005, many of the people in the South voted for uh, the more sectarian prime minister. And that eventually led to the rise of the, to the civil war and all what happened. Right. So, so given, given how Saddam behaved towards the people, as you say, of the South, chemical bombs, mass killing, it's not really surprising that they weren't particularly interested in, in, a, in a liberal democracy, is it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really the, the, big, the biggest failure. I mean, the, the, the thing is that many viewed democracy at the time as really a way of mob rule, is that how I'm going to vote for my party or for my clan to defend me from the other clans. It was, uh, I mean, one of the things that mostly discussed now, 20 years later after the war, is that kind of what does Iraqi identity even mean? So Iraqi identity has really been fluctuating a lot from the kingdom to, to eventually the Saddam Hussein. Uh, and the, the fact is that the moment that state fell, uh, people immediately start going back, not to their kind of more national identity, but rather to their religious and, and sectarian one. And me, myself, I mean, as, a, as an individual, I was raised uh, secular by my family. So, so I didn't grow up. Um, really having any affiliations with any of, of the religious groups or, or the militants, but also never affiliations with the sectarian parties that that uh, that became part of the parliament. So so I grew up in a way. Even my my neighborhood had some Christians. It had Yazidis. It had very diverse kind of set of the whole Iraqi population. So generally raised with with the kids of of the neighborhood who are not um, who are not sectarian and grew up in. In, in a heterogeneous environment. No, and not but were they all part of the same elite as you were? Parents, professional parents, surgeons, doctors, intellectuals, engineers? To, to some extent. Um, I mean, the, the religious minorities, I mean, generally in, in Iraq, mo most of their history have been drawn to, to kind of professions that, that are influential in the society. I mean, if you visit Baghdad, you'll see like, a lot of hospitals, for example, were built by Armenian Iraqis, or um, even, I mean, back in history, there were a lot of Jews as well, but, but which was erased after in the 50s. But you will see that there's a lot of, even in cultural centers and, and, and hospitals and schools that were built by mostly Christians and Armenians and Assyrians and Chaldeans and all of that. Um, so generally, yeah, the minorities in Iraq tend to uh, with the exception of the Yazidis who mostly live in rural agricultural areas, uh, they tend to be more within the kind of the ones who are go-getters. And, right. and, uh, so, so, so Faisal, um, Iraq, for better or worse, has disappeared from the headline. One of the headlines today on Google is one Iraqi killed in Sudan, which isn't really a That's headline. Very briefly, I mean, you're not an, necessarily an expert on Iraq itself, but you 
re retain a keen interest. How would you summarize the history of Iraq since you left the country? What is it now? Is it you, you suggested it isn't really a country? Is it like Bosnia, for example, a place which is so fragmented that you might carry an Iraqi passport, but really no one lives in a place? I mean, the, the geography of Iraq might be true, but everything else um, reflects the fragmentation of the country into uh, religious or sectarian or, or ethnic enclaves of one kind or other. Whether it's maybe maybe Iraq is Bosnia or Lebanon. Um, so I mean, I I have an office in in Erbil in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. So I visited twice last year, and, and it was really illuminating how Iraq has changed in the past uh, twenty years. And I mean, generally speaking, there are two regions. There's federal Iraq, um, and then there's the Kurdistan region of Iraq. The Kurdistan region of Iraq is semi-autonomous. They have their own parliament. They have their own leadership. And then they make deals with the federal Iraq. Um, most and of the country... The oil, they, right? Um, sorry? So they might just made a deal about the oil, yeah. So there's... Um, and that's they, where you have your office in, in, in Iraqi uh, Kurdistan. Yeah, so Iraq Kurdistan, most of its oil comes from the rest of Iraq. Um, and then it comes from another province called Kirkuk, which is still under the, the federal Iraq. So now in post-ISIS Iraq, the federal government pretty much controls uh, all of the country, except the Kurdistan region. The, there are some parts that are... So you would say that Iraq is now kind of two countries. One is the semi-autonomous that has its own government, and then the, the federal country, which also has its own government. Um, over the past, especially post-ISIS, there, there was um, kind of paramilitary groups that, that called al-Hashid al-Sha'bi and others who are affiliated with the Iraqi army that control uh, some parts of the areas that, that used to be controlled by ISIS. And then there are some small areas where there is kind of lack of government control. But in the past kind of couple of years, Iraq, to some extent, regained most of its territory and um, it's under, to some extent, one federal government. Uh, that being said, within there, is a, there are still kind of paramilitary groups and, and militias that have a very strong power um, in the country. And that's where, where the protests in 2009 and 2000, 2019 and the ones that followed after were mostly focusing on is, is to really give more power to the federal government and less to the, to the small militias. So, so really, I mean, in summary is that, I mean, there's Iraq, which is under control of federal government, but there is one region which tends to be far more prosperous than the rest of the country, which is the Kurdistan region. Is has, there any coincidence it, that your group, Ideas Beyond Borders, that its office is in the Kurdistan part of Iraq? I mean, that's, no, shall we not. say, the one place where Ideas Beyond Borders might have some uh, attraction? Um, definitely. I mean, when, when I went there for the first time, like in, in a long time after I became a citizen to Erbil, um, I met with the American University of Kurdistan. I met with officials from the Kurdistan government, and they were very welcoming to the idea that there needs to be open dialogue and conversations and translations of, of materials about liberal democracy and human rights into the languages spoken in Kurdistan. So they were very welcoming um, of that. The... Within the rest of Iraq, the, the place where we had most success is Mosul, which is used to be where ISIS actually declared its caliphate. But many of its younger people who lived under ISIS and, and those who their generations before lived under multiple militias, most of them are kind of rejecting extremism and rejecting the, what they have seen with ISIS. So that, that's an area where also 
We have a very significant presence as an organization. We were part of the coalition that rebuilt the library that, that ISIS destroyed. Uh, Baghdad, to some extent, is fractured. Uh, there are areas in which that are still very sympathetic to, to Iranian influence and, and, and other militias, while some are also, especially within the ones that were leading the protest in 2019, they were also very sympathetic to, to what we do. And, and in fact, one of the books that, that the protesters were carrying in 2019 was John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. Um, and there was there's a lot of inclination within that generation who grew up most of its life on the internet and kind of connectivity um, is to be able to connect to be connected to outside Are ideas. Are we falling and back that, into the old trap of telling telling American um, telling America that young Iraqis are walking around with John Stuart Mill? I mean, that's the sort of thing that. Uh, well, some of them. Uh, I mean, people I, around I wish, Bush would talk about Wolf of I wish everyone in Iraq was John Stuart Mill. But and wow. in fact, one of the only, um, I would say, success story that can be said about Iraq of the war is that Iraq now has a freer, free internet. So many of the people compared to most of the region, I mean, Syria, Iran, and many other places have closed internet and, and the internet is controlled by the government. Well, in Iraq, most of Iraqis have access to... Well, let's say that um, your wish came true, Faisal, and, and all the young Iraqis read John Stuart Mill. What would they learn? What would they learn from On Liberty? They would learn that, that uh, minority opinions matter and, and violence is not the way to resolve differences. If they learn that, I think we'll be in a very good place. Um, I'm not sure they would and, need to read Mill to, to, to learn. I mean, may learn something about minority opinion, but not about violence. You mentioned that there's a a new spirit amongst young people uh, in Iraq and across the Middle East. We did a show last year with an, um, uh, a UCLA historian, Mark Levine. Um, he's a historian of music, and he has a particular interest in the, the music of the Muslim world. He has a new book out, We Play Till We Die, Journeys Across a Decade of Revolutionary Music in the, in the Muslim World. Are you seeing a new spirit of energy and radicalism amongst young people that uh, escapes the old political stereotypes? Um, one of the articles that I'm very proud of that I've written about the underground heavy metal scene in Baghdad. Um, there so is, do you know the so, Levine book? I think you'd, you'd, be, you'd, you'd really enjoy it, actually. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the culture and, and the, these things are, and especially music has been a very big tool against in terms of first uniting people um, and, and also to be speaking against, it's a radical way to speak against radicalism. Um, but there is, a, I mean, Iraq for a long history has a lot of musicians, a lot of artists. So we've never really had an issue with, with having a lack of musicians and artists in the country. But there is a lot of pockets of people, especially like in, in Baghdad and others who listen to kind of punk rock and metal and all of that stuff as a way to speak out and, and to say their grievances against extremist groups. So um, tell us a little bit of, uh, more about um, uh, Ideas Beyond Borders. Um, you're, you're the founder of it. What are you trying to do? And, and how can you be effective? How can we, and I say we, we in the West, how can we help without falling into the old neo-colonial traps of thinking we know best and imposing these catastrophic wars on the region? And that, that's the, the, the solution. I mean, Ideas Beyond Borders is an organization led by pretty much everybody from the region. Um, so the main mission is to make knowledge, uh, especially the knowledge that, was, that is about democracy, human rights, and, and liberalism, 
available to audiences in the broader Middle East, not, not just Iraq. And, and we started first, our kind of biggest project has been on Wikipedia. So we looked at Wikipedia, we run a bot, and we saw what was available in English compared to what's available in Arabic. Um, and most of the articles about these subjects, like women's rights, minority rights, were not available. So we started to build a team of roughly 200 people um, who made their whole focus is to make um, these knowledge in sciences. I mean, there was a lot of very little content about sciences available on the Arabic Internet. So um, you see the Library of Evolution is, is now available in Wikipedia Arabic. So that's our biggest project where we have translated roughly more than 30,000 articles. And now we're doing it also in Kurdish, Farsi, and Pashto with respect to Afghanistan. The other piece of the organization is that we would like to empower people within these countries who would like to put these ideas into action. So, for example, there was a, a group of young people in, in Najaf in, in southern in central Iraq who wanted to do critical thinking workshop and a media literacy workshop inside the country to educate people about how to not fall into the misinformation trap from regional powers. So we started supporting that. So other than we just make the knowledge available, if, if somebody wants to apply it in their own country, in their own kind of local county, uh, we will be there to support them. And that's our program called the Innovation Hub, in which we activate people who want to put, make this idea, put these ideas into action. Um, we, we, some uh, recent example from Afghanistan is that somebody started an IT company that wants to hire Afghan women, and then we supported that. So, so now we're an organization that spreads ideas, but also activates people who believe in these ideas. And um, I think, yeah, people can support if you are an author and you would like your ideas to get out there. You can donate to us your rights for us to translate it. Um, if, if you have recommendations of, of how to circumvent censorship in some Middle Eastern countries like Egypt, Morocco, Iran, etc., which has a lot of uh, heavy centralized censorship by the government, um, I'll always love to hear, be connected to technologists who can develop tools in which people can have secure communications, be able to avoid being tracked. Um, so anything of, of that sort. And of course, financial ways, there's another one. But so given, given what's happening in the region, and we talked at the beginning about Sudan, we haven't even mentioned the ongoing Syrian civil war, given sectarianism in Iraq, given authoritarianism in Egypt, what you're doing is clearly noble. I think we, no one's going to argue with you. How do you keep up your spirit? How do you remain optimistic in what you're doing? It's the people that I work with, I would say. I mean, the fact, one of, one of the people that was translating um, a free speech book was she, she lived in northern part of, of Syria where the earthquake was happening. And even though she had to leave her house, uh, she yeah, was, her name is Dania, right? You exactly. Read about her. Um, she had to leave her house and she was translating the book in the car where she was sleeping. Um, so this is the type of people and the individuals that, that work Aren't you us. falling That's into, though, the sort of the American, tr tr the American mistake of mythologizing individuals and individualism? And there's always these heroic stories, which may be true, but never really work out in practice. Well, I mean, I, I would argue that most most of history was is done is effect of individuals. I mean, Saddam Hussein himself was an individual, a bad one, and did a lot of bad effects in the country. But I think is that the idea that in, individuals, especially ones who are determined and ones who who believe in their values, can do a lot of change. I mean, we may not be able to kind of quote unquote change the world, but I think is that. Um, 
some change can happen, and, and we're seeing it already in terms of people within the region and that if you poll, if you make a distinction on surveys, and there is the wonderful group called the Arab Barometer Report that tries to measure people within kind of ages, and they see that now more and more uh, people are willing to accept democratic norms, democratic ideals, the idea that, uh, that as I said, utilizing debate and, and conversation is a better way to, than solving violence. I think we're, we're seeing it already that, that people, I mean, creating a massive change of eventually Middle East turning into Copenhagen is, is, is unlikely. But I think is that yeah, it's very hard to even turn Copenhagen into Copenhagen, Faisal. We, we are, <laughs> we're always uh, joking about our Danish dilemma of everyone wants to be like Denmark. America wants to be like Denmark. It's failing. Um, the Middle East, perhaps, or Iraq wants to be like America, which itself is increasingly reflecting Iraq. Finally, again, congratulations on what you're doing. It's a noble endeavor. I hope you're successful. Um, you describe yourself... Um, on your Twitter page as, and I love this, it's a memorable Twitter description, a lover of freedom and good kebabs. Is there a connection <laughs> between loving freedom and kebabs? <laughs> I, I think I think that the freedom to, to be in Iraq and, and have kebabs there were, was definitely a great feeling. Can um, you get good think... kebabs in the West? Are there good kebabs in New York? Or do you have to go to Baghdad to get a decent kebab these days, Faisal? Not as good, but but there are good places in London, um, in Edgewood Road. Uh, and there are some good, good places They're in my Michigan. My old stomping ground. Uh, I've eaten many kebabs on the Edgewood Road. <laughs> it is it is the closer. It was great about London. It gets closer to what it is back home. Um, but I, I invite anyone who, who might be curious or risky enough, to take risk to um, now the Iraq, especially Sumeria, the area of Sumeria is reopening for tourists. Um, and there are many people who are from overseas that are going visiting and so they can get the, get some of the history and also get some good kebabs. But I think there's no no better kebabs than the Iraqi ones.